Hey everybody, this is the Patriotic Populist with your host Nevin Gussack. That's me. And my co-host, he is back, Herschel yeah. Miller. I'm he glad is. to be back. All right. Herschel had a great show he did, solo run a couple of days ago that was posted to the Patriotic Populist Facebook page. Be sure to check it out. Excellent show. Herschel came out really as an authentic, working-class, patriotic American a solid working experience in the trades. Really, he's a real good storyteller, so I encourage you to listen to it. Um, uh, you know, definitely we'll uh, get it posted to the Patriotic Populist uh, YouTube page. I'd like to do that at some point. So, uh, how you doing, Herschel? How's the weekend? Oh, damn, Evan, you're going to make me blush. But it's been... I had to work this morning. I only say that for the girls. Yeah. Blood. I had to I had to work this morning, so my weekend hasn't been exactly great. But, you know, five hours of time and a half, or, nah, it's not bad. Week's been all right. I was glad to record that video because, you know, I realized I hadn't done one in almost a year mm -hmm. by myself. And that kind of, I'm going to tell everybody here that doesn't watch that video, I recorded, that was the fifth video I had recorded. And I deleted the other four because I just did not like them. And my wife, she was the one that made me do it. Because I told her, I come in that night and I said, man, I do not want to record this video. She said, record it. Said, Why? She said, because you want to. And I said, no, I don't. She said, yeah, you do. Otherwise, you wouldn't be telling me you don't want to. And she knew what I was doing is I was trying to find somebody to encourage me to keep going. And and I'll be honest with you, it's hard because I don't. I don't like this a lot of times because I'm always worried that I'm going to say something stupid or I'm worried that I'm going to, you know, that once you step into the realm of politics and your face gets out there, you're always one slip away from a scandal. But that was one thing I had to tell myself. It's like, look, first of all, nobody cares right now. But even if they did care, if, if George W. Bush can bounce back from a crippling cocaine habit, I think I could bounce back from saying something a little dumb every now and then. I think that's a good point, and and you're even much more articulate than George W. Bush. So let's Man, just... look. George Bush, to me, and now please do not crucify me, audience of you know, especially the more populist-minded audience. I am not a Republican. As a person, George W. Bush always seemed like a likable dude. No matter mm -hmm. how I felt about his politics. Mm -hmm. And according to my mom, who met George H.W., and I believe it was a college, but I'm not, I believe, yeah, I believe George H.W. had come to or speak when my mom was going to college. The Bushes are genuinely funny people or enjoyable people. Yeah. George H.W. might be a war criminal. That's, you know, for future, you know, the history oriented to debate. But what, this is something, Nevin, I don't want to really make this monologue. I just kind of laugh there laughing about this. Who do you think is somebody that you hate their politics, but you like, or at least think that they would be all right to be around in person? Well, there's actually a bunch of people. Uh, George Bush, George W. Bush, at my former library that I used to manage, um, we actually had police officers there to help, you know, because it was in a rough neighborhood. Uh, and they knew Secret Service people, or they did presidential details. 
uh, down here in Broward County, Florida, when the different, uh, you know, political leaders and candidates would come down, presidential candidates, to visit and do their thing, campaign. And what I have heard was George W. Bush, my, and I've heard George W. Bush, very nice guy. I've heard Donald Trump was also really mad cool. Uh, irrespective of his politics, and there are things you and I agree with him very strongly on and other things we don't. Uh, Bill Clinton, I've heard really good things uh, from them. And I also know that I think it was in Puerto Rico, uh, my stepmom and my dad, they met George Herbert Walker Bush on the beach. Very unassuming, very nice, very down to earth, and kind of easy to talk with. So uh, the worst one that I've heard was Hillary Clinton. And of course, that's no surprise. I mean, geez, Louise, I mean, I mean, Hillary Clinton, I mean, she doesn't seem like a warm and fuzzy person even on camera. And look, it's nothing to do for those of you who are saying, well, you're a chauvinist, Nevin. Well, no, no, I let's put it out there. I like a woman who can think and who has opinions because I sure as heck have opinions and can think. I like a woman who's strong and who's smart and determined. But Hillary Clinton is not a nice person. You could be strong and determined and smart, independent. You could be a nice human being. Hillary Clinton just oozes like just unpleasant to be around. Just everything awful in politics. Well, it's like I've said before. She is, like living, sorry. she is like the living embodiment of everything that is wrong with American politics. I mean, I don't, I really don't think that we could design somebody in a lab that is more <laughs> unlikable, more corrupt, and more just all around horrible just to be near. Look, I had a teacher in high school who met Bill Clinton when he was in the Army. They said Bill is a very fun-loving, easygoing guy to be around. Hillary is the exact opposite. I mean, it's like they could not be two different people. Mm -hmm. I mean, not that I endorse, not that I endorse it, because I've never cheated in any of my relationships or my prior marriage. But God, I could only understand why Bill. I can understand in a, a sick way why <laughs> Bill Clinton. Well. Let's yeah. just say did his thing on the side. I could <laughs> Yeah. Oh yeah. Who could have seen that coming? You know, that's the thing that's hilarious to me about Bill Clinton is because you know when he was young, I mean he is an he was a model young guy growing up. Smart. He, you know, he grew up, I, I believe it was. He was his, he was from a single mom, mm -hmm. not well off. You know, he had really good grades. He studied hard. He he is what should have been a great you know, populist president at that time. But the problem is, is that, you know, populism really wasn't, I mean, it was with, um, ah, shit. What's, what's his name? He split the vote between Bill Clinton and George W. Bush. Uh, oh, uh, Ross Perot. Yeah. I mean, Ross Perot definitely had populism in some fashion or another. But, you know, populism really wasn't a thing in 1990 or 2000, at least like it is today. It wasn't in question. And But that's what's sad is Bill Clinton could have been what amounted to the 2000 or the late 90s uh, FDR. He could have been. Yeah. 
But well, he campaigned as a populist in 1992. He, his campaign, you know, looking back at it, there are certain things that would have resonated with you and I. He campaigned in favor of labor. He campaigned against outsourcing and free trade. He says that the only export from American companies should not be in American jobs, but American products. He condemned the George Herbert Walker Bush administration's coddling of tyrants from Baghdad to Beijing, you know, communist red China and socialist Baathist Iraq under Saddam Hussein. So, I mean, there was a lot of good things that he said on the 1992 campaign trail. Problem was, is he put a lot of these corporate Democrats in his campaign and it was just eyewash. Uh, in 1992 just to get the populist vote. And a lot of people, individually, polls were done at the time showing that a lot of people in America, uh, and especially in the heartland as well, uh, were populist-leaning. They had suspicions of big corporations and Wall Street. They didn't like the export of jobs, you know, and things of that nature. So uh, they didn't like the deregulation of Wall Street, you know, things of that nature. So... You know, it's just, you know, American history goes in cycles, as I think you and I know. I was talking with somebody else. You, you know, we go through a lot of cycles in history, and there's going to be continued populist reawakenings in this country. And I think that's, you know, if we can you know, give an opinion based on hope and positive feelings, there's going to be more populist reawakenings. And look, traffic at sites like this will probably increase. Well, you know, you got to think about it. It's May Day. You know, it's... I'm, okay. To those of you that do not know, and I understand why you don't know, because May Day is definitely not a big holiday in the United States, but it's remembering the workers that were... Or, I can't remember. Today was the day that they were sentenced, I believe. Mm -hmm. What was it? 15? 15 of them? Okay. I'm not going to get into the details because I'm not a historian on this. I'm trying to learn more. But what I do know is the basic story. A bunch of workers that, that were striking up in Chicago. Cops come in, bust their heads all up. You know, normal late 18th century strike-breaking tactics. You know, it's a thousand times it's happened in U.S. history. Allegedly speaking, there was a conspiracy of workers that threw a bomb into the police. Now, mm -hmm. they might have, they might have not. I'm not going to sit here and say, and I'm not condoning using terroristic efforts to stop police. Well, what I am saying is, is today is kind of a remembrance day of all the struggles that the labor movement had went through, you know, during the late 18th or 19th century, especially. And it's something I talked about in my video the other day. The, the labor history in the United States is not one long series of uninterrupted victories, starting from the formation of unions and ending with FDR. Mm -hmm. No, we got our ass kicked. A hundred times we got our ass kicked. We did. And... <clears throat> What we've got to remember is, is that it's not always going to, you're not always going to win the day. You've got to learn that, look, we lost Bessemer. It's probably going to be a while before we get another one, but there will be another one. Mm -hmm. The labor history in the United States is a cycle, and it will continue to cycle. Right now, labor is rising across the board. Labor unions have their highest popularity ratings in like 50 years at this point, and it's, it, it's not nothing. Mm -hmm. Now, and I hate to say this. The Reagan years was not the first time that the United States experienced unrestrained free markets, or at least way freer markets. You know, the Gilded Age 
the age that preceded the the progressive era that preceded FDR. I mean, I guess FDR is technically part of the progressive era. It's kind of hard to say. I don't know. It's not important for history. The point is that the Gilded Age, Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, Andrew Carnegie, these guys, they were doing stuff then, and the workers were experiencing things that we're experiencing now. You've got these big corporations, these big robber barons, these big carpetbaggers at the top of the system that are pulling all the strings with their massive, massive fortunes. So what I'm trying to get to, none of this is new. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, or was it Ecclesiastes or Proverbs? I can't remember. But basically said that there's no such thing as a new thing. Everything that we think is new is just an old thing that's been forgotten about. And, and uh, that's always stuck with me because when I look at, especially here lately as I've been reading up on the labor, labor struggle, mm-hmm. we're fighting the same fight that our grandpas fought. Mm-hmm. And our grandkids will fight the same fight we're fighting. And it's not me saying this to try to lose hope. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not a nihilist. This is not pointless. It's just our turn to pick up the fight. You know, as I was talking one progressive populist radio uh, show host, uh, John Sylvester, Sly Sylvester, he's based in Wisconsin, and I was talking through briefly with him, Facebook uh, private messenger. And one of the things that, you know, one uh, grain of hope, really more than a grain of hope that he provides is also look at the younger people. The younger people are much more Mm -hmm. friendlier to populism and workers' rights and whatnot. The flip side that concerns me, though, and you and I were talking about this off air, a lot of younger people are also drifting more towards accepting socialism and communism. And that concerns me because you don't want to be governed by a socialist or communist authoritarian dictatorship. And that's a concern. And you have these, we've talked about this before together, and I've talked about it on my solo programs. A lot of these individuals that join the labor unions and extremist groups, they're growing and growing and growing and growing in numbers. I mean, Party of Socialism and Liberation, I have a source in the PSL, says they're growing, they're becoming very active for tenants' rights against abusive landlords. Uh, You know, the PSL garnered a lot of votes in Illinois, New York, Florida, and California. No big surprise, California. That's not a good thing. Um, So... And the head of the P, one of the heads of the PSLs, who I think was the presidential candidate, Gloria Lariva, she said that the resistance to anti-communism is really eroding in this country because you have a younger generation that doesn't remember the Cold War. Everyone told us that the Cold War has ended, Russia is no longer communist or an enemy of the United States. And... You know, China, well, people are catching on on China, but still you have a lot of people saying, whoa, we could trade with China and, you know, that'll make them a free market economy and they'll buy our products and all that other horse poop. (laughs) Excuse me. And, 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 you know, so that's a concern of mine is because our structure, our economic and political structure is frayed. You, know, you got a lot of younger people who have a lot of the right ideas, but there are extremist movements that are want to exploit them and channel that into collapsing the country and and ushering in revolution. And you know, to close my point, and I'll let you respond. We are like Teddy Roosevelt. 
we oppose the sort of Tea Party reactionary, you know, let's deregulate everything and just let the market, whatever the heck that is, work its magic, that kind of thing, trickle-down economics. We oppose that like Teddy Roosevelt. We oppose the efforts to create tea baggers stand in the United States. But also we don't want to we also like Teddy Roosevelt takes a very firm unyielding stand against efforts to create the United recreate the US into what I'll call tanky stand, meaning a communist yeah. or socialist dictatorship. I mean, I don't want tea bagger stand and I don't want tanky stand. What are your well, thoughts about that, Herschel? Okay, I'll start with the young about people. This? Yeah, so, so the young people. This is where I'll say, because you know me, I'm 23 years old. I am in the generation that's always talked about. You know, every time Fox News runs a story about lazy millennials or lazy young <laughs> people, they're talking about me. They're talking about my generation. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'd like to point out the fact that our, un our employment rates are similar to basically every other generation, you know, mm -hmm. that... There's really no significant statistical difference between us and any other generation. No. Other than the fact that we went through a great recession and then Corona within the first 20 years of our life. Yeah. Well, maybe a little bit long. Okay. The point is, is that a guy like me born in 1997 in 2008, the stock market crashed, took all kinds of jobs, took all kinds of opportunities and destroyed the job market for people that were a little bit older than me. See, I was too young to have to really experience that job market, but, it really didn't stop like they said it did. That You know, people say the Great Re Recession ended, and I call bullshit on that. Mm -hmm. The Great Recession never truly ended like you would consider something ending, like we went back to normal. Now, what happened is, is the Federal Reserve put a big-ass Band-Aid on a broken economy and has kept it on life support now for, you know, what, what would it be, eight, nine, about 10 years now, nine years? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, at least, well, it's really since yeah, longer than that, 2008, no. 2009. Yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. Yeah, shit, that's way off. That's 13 years. But the point is, is that we've been running a zombie economy now for 13 years. An economy that is overcrowded by overqualified people. And what I mean by that, traditionally speaking, the entry-level jobs were available to the youngest generation. Now, look, I'm a person that believes in the value of labor no matter what stripe it takes. Look, a, a burger flipper at McDonald's has every right to make a decent living as somebody like me. Now, obviously, I am not an advocate for equal pay mm -hmm. as far as I don't think that every job should be equally paying. That's stupid. You need to reward effort. I'm exactly. not going to drag your ass through five years of an apprenticeship to make the same as somebody from McDonald's. I'm not. But that doesn't mean I'm mad at the person from McDonald's. They should still be able to pay for a house, should still be able to pay for their basic necessities in life without government assistance. Exactly. The problem is a huge number of entry level positions across the United States are filled by older generations. Now, mm -hmm. you're talking about people in their 30s, in their 40s, their 50s, people on Social Security working at Walmart, McDonald's, uh, working as shelf stockers and people like that. What that means is, is every job that an older, more qualified person takes up is a job that a young person like me cannot get into. Getting to my point, this is the economy that we grew up in, the economy that we've had to fight and claw and scratch through. And we're tired of it. You know, completely not speaking on behalf of my generation, you know, as a whole, 
we're tired of eating shit while nobody's paying attention to the fact that we are drowning in student loan debt and lack of opportunities. Now, yeah, and and not to cut in, and the the elites no, the elites are telling us, oh, the elites are basically putting chocolate syrup on the shit and saying, oh, it's uh, pudding. You know, well, I'll tell you no, that. it's not. It's not. Here's a couple of We've statistics. been in a depression or a recession for large parts of the heartland and the South since the 1980s because of deregulation, globalism, free trade, union busting, and financialization, yeah. and, to, and open borders, the abuse of the undocumented and undocumented immigrants as a labor yeah. arbitrage. Go ahead. Yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't no, 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 no. I like this. Now, here's the thing. A couple of statistics for the people out there under what I'm talking about. We are working for less money. Again, speaking on the people under 30. We entered a job market making less money with housing and vehicles being more expensive than they ever have been, with education being more expensive than it's ever been. <clears throat> what I'm, that's a deadly combination because what you've done is stonewalled off a path to a better life for the vast majority of people across the United States, except for the most gifted and the most dedicated. Now, there's nothing wrong with the most gifted and the most dedicated being the ones that make it, or at least or that hold have a lot of success. But when you build an economy that has basically strangled the life out of the vast majority of people like me, then them people will turn to another source to leave their problems. Exactly. Thank like you're you. talking about with the PSL, with the, uh, the uh, what is it? what's the, uh, the American Communist Party? It's not called that. Uh, it's the... It's a party of communists, USA. USA. Yeah. So these big communist, socialist, and, and in some cases, national socialist or, you know, extreme authoritarian ideals and parties, they are growing in popularity simply off of the fact that they are growing in popularity because people are looking for answers to problems that politicians and leaders are not offering at this moment. You know, when, when you tell a kid that's, that's trying to become an engineer, I'm not talking about underwater basket weaving. I'm not talking about gender studies, what other bullshit that Fox News is trying to say that all the kids are taking nowadays. I'm talking about exactly. a real job in a real yeah. career that takes that we need we need engineers but you tell this kid okay you're going to go to four years of university you're going to go into a lot of debt i mean an ungodly amount of debt thank you and while you're there you're going to be competing with people that are also in huge amounts of debt from various backgrounds and when you finish and that's a big you know i should say if you finish because our dropout rate is steadily climbing from what I've read. You're going to be entering into one of the most competitive and low paying job markets in recent U.S. history. Mm -hmm. What do you expect these kids to do? Now, yeah, if you're, it's easy to paint this generation as a bunch of lazy, entitled millennials. And don't get me wrong, I've run into my fair share of people that would fit that description. Exactly. The vast majority of people across the United States want a better life for themselves. They, they want, want to have families. They want to have kids. You wonder why our birth rate is going down? It's because of teabagger, globalist, reactionary economics. And I'm not sorry for using these labels because I am hopping mad about this. Because mm -hmm. 
you and I, Herschel, we're the true conservatives. Well, we want to realize the goals of conservatism. Stronger nuclear families, increased birth rates, more kids, more entrepreneurialism, strong national security, smashing the ultra left and neo-Nazi types, you know, collectivist, socialist type totalitarians. We want to do this. But contrary to much of the, the political right in this country, we actually are serious about this. We are not imprisoned by stale ideological and policy suggestions that have been used for 40 years since teabagger-in-chief Ronald Reagan became president. And even Carter did some of this crap, too. You know? Yeah. <sighs> part about all this so conservatives for the last 40 years like i said since reagan have went on this campaign of anti-communism now don't get me wrong most conservatives hate communism i'm not disputing that fact but the way that conservatism has went about fighting communism is totally and completely ineffective because nafta created communists uh deregulation created communists allowing pharmaceutical companies to do whatever they wanted, created communists. These globalist, free market fundamentalists have created far more communists than Marx and Engels ever dreamed about. Because yeah. when you take somebody's livelihood, when you take their ability to succeed in life, they will find somebody that can provide it for them. Now, whether that be a communist dictatorship or <coughs> a fascist dictatorship or some type of hybridized, bastardized system, it doesn't matter. The point is, and this is something I, I like to bring up, you know, the, the Stalinism or, or, you know, it was all, the Soviet Union was very anti-monarchy. That was kind of one of their tenets, you know, that kind of helped, mm -hmm. you know, encourage the whole thing along. But this is what I always found funny. To me, there is no real distinction between an absolute dictatorship and a monarchy, between an absolute monarchy and a fascist dictatorship or whatever type of, it, when you put all of the power into one person's hand, it really doesn't matter what flag they're waving or what colors they're wearing. The point is, is that there's an auto, it's an autocracy. It is, and getting to the point, these people are turning to these autocrats in, in waiting and don't, get, don't make no mistake. They are in waiting right now. The people that will come to define the 21st century right now are in the streets gathering political support. Now, who they are, I don't know. You know, I don't think anybody at the end of the 19th century could have predicted, you know, the rise of Hitler, or the rise of Stalin, or the rise of Trotsky, or Lenin, or any of them. The people that will define what the future is for the United States and the world are already here. Mm -hmm. And your kids... Your neighbors, your cousins are following them. And that's the thing that we've got to wrap our heads around. If we don't take real steps right now to change the way that we do our economy, the way that we do our education, the way that we use our military invention, we will drown our the next coming generations in, in political instability, outright anarchy at times, or just a flat out, you know, absolute dictatorship. Because the failure of our system it is is what is fueling these people. Like we said, the PSL. They make their living off of the failures of the corporatists. 
they make their living off the failures of U.S. foreign policy. These people, they use the failures of the, especially the conservatives, as recruiting tools to gather more support. Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean when I say that Reagan created more communists than Marx or Lenin. That's right. Bertolt Oldman, who was a Marxist professor uh, at the time during the 1980s, he said there were more Marxists on campus than ever. <clears throat> and a lot of it's not because of, quote, dumb Gen X kids or, uh, you know, at the t well, Gen X is later. I'm Gen X. We went to college in the 1990s. But, <clears throat> you know, it was not because of the youth at the time that they were just merely malleable. I mean, the youth had reason to get attracted to Marxist ideas, and that just continued a forward march. And within the past 10 years, uh, statistics and studies have shown this. I mean, the percentage of people embracing socialism and communism is really astronomical. It's a lot. And don't forget, it can happen in the United States. Russia, the czarist empire, it collapsed because of failures on the military front during World War One, and just the incompetence and corruption in government. And it was really not responsive to the needs of the people. And then what happened was, is you had a weak provisional government. It was a democratic government that succeeded the czar. And Russia had a population, I think, at the time of 91 million. And the number of Bolshevik party members in a nation of 91 million with the huge landmass of the Russia under the czar and then the provisional government, massive land, land area. Only 100 or 200,000 Bolsheviks at most by mid to late 1917. They took power in November 1917. In a huge country of 91 million, massive landmass. Do the arithmetic. There are tens of thousands of people total who are communists in this country. That's a lot. Because if the poop hits the fan in this country, and there's Russia and China waiting to invade and they have their plans as an option, it's not gonna be pretty. And people are gonna to wanna to survive. So they'll do what they need to do. They'll resist, they'll collaborate, whatever. And these communists, they're going to blast with propaganda saying, oh, it was the militarists in Washington DC that caused this and now we're gonna usher you in a better future and you know, we're going to give you free housing, free this and free that and everything else. And a lot of people are going to be desperate and they're going to, you know, go with it. And it's all because our corporations, our large corporations, the teabagger globalists, teabagger lights like Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin and others, they're not putting through as Teddy Roosevelt wanted the necessary social reforms to ensure the perpetuity of the United States of America. Well, Nevin, I'd like to make a point here, and this is a fairly serious point. So, obviously, a big part of the show is our anti-communist and anti-Russian stance. And I've thought about it for a while. I've thought about this probably longer than I've thought about any other individual question, and this is what I'd like to say. Putting the ideology aside, putting the 
you know, the history beside. The United States has found itself in this position in a large part due to itself. Mm -hmm. But during the 2000s, I would say this, from the fall of the Soviet Union until probably 2010, the United States stood fairly alone on top of the world's pecking order. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm a firm believer that what we considered to be the end of the Soviet Union was merely a, if anything, a, a stunt to try to take attention off of it. But this is what happened. This, the Russia did take a step down off of the world stage there for about 20 years, trying to reorganize, recoup, and re, you know get its mojo back, you'd say. Mm -hmm. China was a growing world superpower, but was not a threat to the United States. That's different now. The United States, Russia, and China are the three largest superpowers in the world by a considerable margin. Nobody else in the world can claim to have such a vast military and economic base in which to push its sphere of influence around the world. And this, I, th this fight is going to be decided sometime this century. I have no doubts about that. Now, maybe it's not a fight as we consider it. Maybe it's not World War III, but the influence is no different than what happened during the Cold War as we understand it. The United States and, and the Soviet Union, in, in, in the historical sense, were smart enough to not get into a slugging match with each other because they knew all it would mean was the destruction of the world as we knew it. You know, the one thing that, that Red Dawn kind of got wrong was the fact that the U.S.'s military's plan for invasion was just to nuke the shit out of Russia, and vice versa. If there ever was a land invasion of the United States, it was going to end in a nuclear, or, or Russia. It was going to end in a nuclear exchange. That was just how it was going to end. So the United States and Russia played this game of, of influence and subversion for, well, you could say at least 40 years, but we know that it's went on further than that. And that's happening again. The, the propaganda, the influence, the, the money, we're in the same shit one more time. China and Russia are using their influence and their connections to influence American politics directly and indirectly. Funding the right people, pushing the right information. This is not over. This is not done. <clears throat> if you're not an ideological person, it's just simply them trying to take the spot that the United States occupies. They want to be the world's biggest state. They, they're the biggest influencers, the world's only superpowers. And that's what we found ourselves in. And this is why it, it just pains me to no end. And I mean, keeps me up at night. When I look around and realize that the vast majority of American politicians are not taking this threat as seriously as they should, because we're not talking about just trying to, this is, this problem's not just going to go away by itself. And when you've got people that are talking about, oh, well, we can continue to trade with China and Russia, there's no big deal, or that we can find some way to cooperate, there's no cooperation here. There's no way that this ends with some, teaming up of the United States and China. It's not going to happen because they want our spot and we don't want to give up our spot. And that's just the, the hard, ugly truth at the end of the day. Nevin, you are a, you are very experienced, very well read on U.S., Soviet, then U.S., Russia, or U.S., China's, or Chinese relations. What would you say about that? No, I mean, I wholeheartedly agree. I, the war plans, one thing I wanted to elaborate on, the war plans of the Soviets and now Russia 
<clears throat> and China, they're different levels of stages. Uh, you know, Viktor Suvorov, who was a defecting Red Army officer from the GRU, the Military Intelligence Service, Colonel Stanislav Lunev, who was a GRU colonel, <clears throat> who was privy, they were all privy to Soviet and then even, well, in the case of Lunev, Russian Yeltsin era war planning. And they defected. Clinton administration really did not take Lunev's testimony seriously. I think they even tried to kind of hide it, suppress it, and whatnot. But they said that there are different waves of attack that they would do. They, the Soviets and the Russians and China, they don't subscribe to the the idea of mutually assured destruction. They will use special operations forces, uh, Spetsnaz, GRU Spetsnaz, in the case of the Russians to uh, assassinate our political leaders, to sabotage military bases. And then what they will do next is launch a decapitation strike, not against the cities because for the population, but strategic targets, strategic industrial targets. Of course, we've outsourced a lot of our industry, which doesn't help. So our supply chains are much more vulnerable than they were, say, in World War II. Um, and then also they would attack command and control Washington, D.C. They would uh, attack the SAC bases that we have remaining in this country, important radars that guards the dew line in, up at north that detects incoming Soviet or Russian or missiles, ICBMs. <clears throat> so you have a lot of that. Uh, and then what will happen is, is then the Russians and Chinese will move the troops, and that's their latest plan, according to GRU Colonel Stanislav Lunev. Whether it will pan out or not is anyone's guess. It's an option they have on the table. It's something we need to take extremely seriously. And frankly, it's something we need, should have informed the public about, to be honest with you, because the only way to one of the most effective ways to cripple Russia and China is informing our population, launching a counter-propaganda campaign to inform our public as to what the hell is going on with, the, with those governments there. And they have allies throughout the world, Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Bolivia is back in the camp after having a teabagger government. Now it's back to Marxism again under Evo Morales and the MAS movement. You have Vietnam, you have China, North Korea, Belarus, Russia, Iran, Syria, South Africa, Zimbabwe. I'm probably forgetting a few here. They have agents in this country. You know, teabagger politicians like Ron Johnson, they advocate for China, you know, because he's a greedy-ass teabagger who has business interests in China. So you got guys like him. You got, <clears throat> you know, you got the Workers' World Party, the PSL, the CPUSA, and others, which have very close ties to China and even Russia in some cases. You know, people like Danny Ifong, Workers' World Paper. He's on the left scene. You have Caleb Malpin. You know, he's uh, you know, worked for Iranian and Russian state news agencies. And he, he says his goal in one interview is to want to see, quote, imperialism die, which means the United States. Um, and that's not good. So they have a lot of assets and potential collaborators in the United States. And it's a very serious problem. Um, Cold War is not ended. And... We need. We just need to take this seriously. We haven't hardened our EMP really to speak of, uh, our power grid. 
against an EMP attack. We haven't done that. Look what happened with COVID. I mean, I would argue that it was a Chinese, a leaked or purposefully released Chinese bioweapon. And we can talk about that different time, some of the evidence that I have, but you know, that's a possibility we have to really seriously consider, even publicly. Uh, and look what happened with COVID. We had a more disunited government, more of a disunited government as well as population than ever. I mean, I hate to see what would actually happen in this country if we had a Red Dawn-style invasion or an economic collapse that will lead to the growth of extremists in this country. I mean, I, 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 I want to say we will pull together, but are we in a position like what we were in war, even before World War II? There were a large part of the American public did not want to get involved in uh, World War II on the side of the Allies against the Axis powers. I believe it was I mean, at 9% in 1940. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of people did not want to get involved, even when it was weapons shipments. I'm not even talking about troops. I'm talking weapons shipments and other aid from the United States from the, uh, to, uh, to Britain and uh, France. You know, France fell, so it was really Britain alone in Europe. Uh, yeah, very, very serious uh, situation. I mean, I don't know what to say, but we don't have civil defense. Uh, you know, some of our computer systems within the military with the Air Force or Pentagon or something or another. No, the ICBM missiles. They were operating on 1980s era floppy disks. Yeah. I mean, really? I mean, what the hell? I mean, we got serious work to do, and yet we spend trillions of dollars on weapons that the Pentagon or the military contractors overcharge and charge an arm and a leg because they basically control defense policy in many ways. I mean, fuck it, just nationalize these uh, thing, these things. I mean, our tank factory in Lima, Ohio is a nationalized enterprise. I just want weapons, the best possible weapons, produced at a reasonable cost. And if the defense contractors don't want to do it, then we got to nationalize them or something or another. It's ridiculous already. You know, we're not prepared. We're not as prepared as we should. Yes, we are cutting edge with technology. A lot of it's also imported with defense systems since the 1980s. Japan, for example, we've been dependent since the 1980s for our military microelectronics from Japan. So um, we look at our supply chain. We couldn't retool like what we did in World War II. If we had a, an attack from Russia or China, even conventional, I don't think so. So that's my well, thoughts. And I'll, and this is one thing. The United States gets, gets compared to the Roman Empire quite a lot. And I think maybe unjustly at times, because one of the problems that I have is that when you start comparing things, people tend to leave out important details or context of a situation. But I will say this. If we allow the comparison of the United States to the Roman Empire, we have a real decision to make. Because the Roman Empire, it faced trial, tribulation, struggle, and strife to, as well. You know, it wasn't like the entire history of the Roman Empire was rainbows and sunshines. You know, there was quite a few times that, when you're know, like under Hannibal when Rome was sacked or like under or nearly sacked 
or uh, further back in its history when it was still in the public. The point is, the United States is not a lost cause. And I don't want to, that to be what you're, what people think I'm saying. Yes. Trust me, I, I, definitely, you know, I definitely believe that the United States can and should, maybe will, turn itself around. I think that the problem that the United States has gotten into is complacency. Complacency mm-hmm. to the fact of thinking that we're untouchable when we're not. Yes. The United States is not, as much as we would like to believe, unique in world history. I mean, yes, we've done great things, built great things, inspired great leaders, but the United States is still a nation like so many you know, hundreds and thousands of nations that have existed before us. And a nation, for a nation to succeed, it must be constantly improved, constantly fixed up. It's, yes. like, it's like driving an old truck. When you buy a truck, a new truck, usually you don't have to worry about the maintenance for a while, but eventually something will break. And the more miles that you put on it, the more maintenance that is going to be required. And the United States is a young nation in comparison to a lot of the world's powers. I mean, for God's sake, the Japanese have been around since before Christ. You know, the, 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 the British, you know, they've been around forever. But the United States is starting to show its age. And I think this is a problem that we're facing with this, you know, the, not having much unity in the country, is the um, people have, have, for a good part of the United States, the majority of the population lived in a small area, relatively speaking, a small area. And we have spread out across what the United States is over the generations. I think that one of the biggest problems that we're facing at the moment is the fact that people from California and people from Texas don't share much of a common heritage at this point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, same country, same laws, same military history, stuff like that. But let's just be honest here. Like, if you took a person from California, their culture is fairly radically different from Texas, uh, Texas, North <laughs> Dakota. We have to find something some type of common uniting factor in this country. Now, I'm not sure what it'll be. I really hope it doesn't come down to some grand military action or uniting factor because that's, I mean, yeah, it's great for the storybooks, but as far as the practical thing in people's lives, like people die in war, that's just part of it. And I really hope it doesn't come to that. What I would like to think could unite the United States, and I'm not sure it would, but I think that it could, is some type of grand infrastructure, some type of grand spending. Now, I know I, you say the word spending and conservatives, you know, they draw up into nothing. But what I'm talking about is, is something like the interstate commerce system was or something like the navigate the river navigation system was or something like what FDR did on, with the WPA, the CCC and a couple of the other organizations is rebuilding the United States to catch us up with the rest of the world on infrastructure, on education, on healthcare, doing stuff like that, that gives people a sense of a common goal, a common thing to strive for. And I'm not saying it's going to fix everything, but I think it's a start. Now, Nevin, we've talked for almost an hour, but my time is running short. I'm going to have to get off of here. Okay, no problem. Uh, It's been a great show. I got stuff to do. I got another long day tomorrow. Uh, good day, I might add, God willing, um, provided that my nine o'clock in the morning plans pan out, if you get my drift. 
And uh, yeah, no, I'm gonna. We'll look forward to doing next week's interview with my friend Rohit and his girlfriend. Uh, we're gonna be interviewing him again, and she'll be joining us. They're both politically very active. She's an activist, <clears throat> so I think that'll be a fun interview, guys. Thank you all for joining us. Well, this before we go, yeah, before we go, be sure to check out the Patriotic Populist on Facebook, YouTube, and I think we're on Spotify, Apple Play. And I'm forgetting the last one. I'll put it in the description when I post it to Facebook. The point is, we're on a couple of different sites now. Be sure to check it out. There's probably one or two ways you prefer to view stuff, and I'm sure that we're on there somewhere. Nevin, it's been a pleasure. Have a great night. Enjoy your weekend. Take care. You as well. Okay. Well,